And welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Saren Kaster. Uh, my usual cohort is actually absent today, and I will be largely absent because we have a uh, very uh, uh, welcome guest host, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, Frank Horvat, who I've known for any number of years now. I don't even want to guess. Maybe he will. Uh, is jumping in today, giving uh, the rest of my team the week off, and we're going to have what is now going to be called the uh, Green Majority Eco Artist Roundtable. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, a number of of arts-related environmental issues. We have a number of artists and the musicians in the studio, and you are going to, uh, as a special treat for me, hear very little from me today, and I'm going to pass you over to, uh, as your fall holiday, break from my sarcasm, I'm going to give you the very sincere joy of Frank Horvat. Take it away. Thank you, Saren. I, by the way, I love your sarcasm, but, you know, everybody always needs a break from everything, right? Including yourself. You do always there's, such a great a, job on the show. There's such a thing as too much of a good thing, Frank. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the inaugural eco-artist of Roundtable on the Green Majority. This is very exciting to be doing this. Um, so the Roundtable, the basic idea here is a bunch of artists are getting together. A lot of environmentally uh, conscious artists are getting together to talk about uh, arts projects, their um, their hopes for the future, their fears for the future in our environmentally sustainable world. So I want to introduce our three guests here today. Um, Julie Gladstone is a Toronto-based artist working in abstract painting, sculpture, and installation. Her interpretation of the everyday landscape is revealed through an abstract language whose aesthetics consider the intersections of the urban and the natural consumer culture and contemporary spirituality. She has received media attention from CBC Arts, Toronto Guardian, Toronto Life, and Notable.ca, and has received support from Toronto Arts Council and Ontario Arts Council. Julie, thank you for joining us. Hi, great to be here, Frank. Excellent. And also joining me in the studio is Rebecca Jane Houston. She's a sculptor, sculptor, not a sculptor, actually. No, she's not stone. <laughs> she is a sculptor, painter, and art teacher who has worked in arts-based community development for many years. She works with many kinds of materials to create works that reflect our own actions back to us. Often working with waste, uh, Rebecca explores the agency of matter and the power that refuse has over us through our bodies on human, non-human interactions and on the built and natural environment. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you. Excellent. And joining us by phone uh, is Beverly McIver. Uh, Beverly McIver is a storyteller, collaborative pianist, music educator, and composer who crafts musical narratives. She's the music director at Knox United Church in Edwards, just outside of Ottawa. She's a member of Laxil First Nation in Northwest, uh, Northwestern Ontario and has been a guest on Algonquin Unceded Territory in Ottawa for over 25 years, and she's joining us by phone from Ottawa. Beverly, hello. Good morning. Thank you for being here. So, um, my fellow artists, well, basically the nutshell here is we have two musicians and two visual artists. So it's like this little competition here, I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is really exciting to do this for the first time. And what we're gonna be doing today's show, as mentioned, is we're gonna just talk a little bit about the state of our world um, 
climate change wise, eco sustainability wise, but purely from an artist perspective. And of course, all of these talented artists are going to also talk a little bit about their projects later on the show. We're actually going to hear some clips of Beverly's music and um, and we'll just go with the flow. This is just what they call just a little discussion and chat amongst friends. Um, so let me throw this out to all of you to start the conversation. I'm going to throw a wild question out there. Do arts programmers do enough to program performances and shows based on eco themes? Who wants to start with that? <laughs> Julie, what do you think? Um, I think that um, at, right now, at least in Toronto, there's quite a lot being programmed um, regarding those topics. Um, the AGO has a show on right now about the Anthropocene. Um, we have the annual show at the Gladstone uh, Grow Up, where Rebecca and I have both um, participated in. Um, <clears throat> there's even um, a sort of an installation out in Mississauga, Earthland Air. So it seems like it's a hot topic right now. Is that the Earthland Air? Is that their new? I read a little bit about that. I think recently that was a. It was sort of their version of Nuit Blanche or something like that. Or was that um, the idea of that? Um, as far as I know, it was a daytime programmed event. But right. yeah, it was. I think they took over some former industrial sites and transformed it through installation art. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Do you think, do you think, because um, being a musician, I'm not sort of familiar so much with the arts, the arts world and approaching gallery owners and, and curators and so forth. When you approach a curator or a, a show organizer with the idea for a show um, or an exhibit um, around an environmental theme, do you feel hesitancy or is it sort of the opposite right now in our world? Um, I, I'm not sure I've really done that, gone out and pursued a gallery for a show. It's usually uh, responding to calls that you see. I mean, people, uh, gallerists and curators put out calls for particular shows that they're curating and they're looking for artists to show, or perhaps uh, an artist-run center is looking for proposals for work to do. And I think that there's no hesitancy. I think in particular, um, in Toronto, it's a very politicized arts-based landscape, um, or the, uh, the arts landscape in Toronto. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, it's hard to go to see a show that isn't uh, referencing intersectionality and looking at environmental issues as well as issues about race and about oppression very broadly. And in fact, I think that's very intrinsic in so much of what the arts community is working towards in terms of a better world. I don't think it's really possible to tease out or separate out individual streams of concern, really. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say that I would say I think the majority of the work that I see is politicized in one of those directions. And often environmental considerations are layered in with other considerations. For sure. Yeah, I would say, too, you know, I'm I'm in the world of uh, painting, which, um, you know, in that often will come up more in a commercial gallery setting. 
even within the commercial gallery setting, you know, I see a lot of landscape painting, um, contemporary landscape painting that is considering the impact of humans on the environment coming up more and more. Um, an example that comes to mind is the painter Kim Dorland, who, um, you know, he's working in the tradition of the group of seven and um, plein air painting, and now there's always... Um, yeah, human human presence within those paintings. So, in some ways, I think it's how you how you talk about it um, that really that really matters. You know, you don't necessarily want art that feels like you're um, getting hit over the head with a message. It has to be more nuanced, and it has to be a discussion. Yeah, I find that interesting. You mentioned that because. Um... I'm a, I'm a huge visual arts fan. That's a huge influence on my music. So I often look to, you know, visual art as a as a big influence on what I'm doing musically. And so uh, I, I find it fascinating, though, that and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's this sort of strong tradition in the visual art world about nature. Nature for hundreds of years has been the most one of the most popular subjects, right, um, that painters have explored in their work. Um, I wonder if. I wonder if in the visual art world there is still this sort of sort of I know in the music world we're often battling, you know, breaking down the traditions and trying to further the art and expand it to do something a little more modern. Um so do you find subject matter wise that perhaps, you know, the the art world is wanting you to stick with these sort of very traditional subjects? Uh, like things like beautiful scenery, beautiful, you know, uh, you know, a beautiful mountain or beautiful trees, or, or is it, or do you feel like positive that this, the contemporary art scene is like, yes, let's move this forward now. Let's expand this. Let's take that, you know, let's see a clear cut forest in the painting, you know, and somehow see beauty or shock in that. So, um, I would say there's definitely different sectors in, you know, the art world is a really big place and there's different people who um, are content to stay within tradition, but there's definitely a lot of movement I see um, and freedom. And that's what, you know, draws me to be an artist is the freedom to explore ideas, ex you know, explore um, in particular in terms of the environmental themes, you know, how, how do these themes, um, how do these, how does, how does the situation of um, climate change and so on, how does that feel to live in a world like that? And, you know, what role do artists play in exploring the implications? And, um, you know, I see that as being the role of, of artists is to process that information. I guess we're just a product of our, of the day and age we live in, right? So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think in one of the roles that artists play is not only to be a product of the world they live in, but to be critically reflecting on and reflecting back what's happening. I think that is really the the a significant core. I mean, arts are, you know, for many things or not for anything, depending on how you define it. But um, yeah, I think that the the artists work is really not to just be pushed by the tides. That is that is really not what we do. We are really trying to look through and to see cores of matters, like the heart of the matter, and to to challenge or question 
you know, very much, I think. And I think I wouldn't say that um, people are asked to paint pretty paintings. I think very much the opposite for many, actually for several, many decades that, you know, painting was declared dead a very long time ago. And then it has, because of the freedom that that provided, allowed painting to become a completely new and different and relevant thing. And it does, every generation changes. Um, so I think it's endlessly, endlessly productive and <laughs> fertile, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Beverly McIver, in our yeah. world of music, what do you think? Are, are when, when we're trying to present music we're writing, um, is it harder or easier to present eco-based or socially conscious music? What springs to mind for me as far as uh, music based on eco-themes is the roles of folk festivals and film festivals. So quite often those themes are well represented in those venues. But I think uh, if, I, if I was to look at the programming of some of the mainstream organizations, I don't think I would see a lot of uh, eco-themes represented there. Do you think that's because um, composers are fearful of writing that music out of the fact that it might not be programmed? Or do you think um, there's not an interest from composers to write that? Or there is no demand from the concert presenters uh, for that? Well, I can only speak for myself. I've, I've only produced one work and I so I didn't have a fear of whether it was going to get performed or not I just I, I just needed to write it um, certainly it's nice to get performed and it's uh, I think it's challenging to find venues in general for original compositions yeah that's definitely a part of our world for sure and I think that's the the plight of the modern artist so yeah and then on top of that if you're writing something that perhaps is um I don't know why it would be considered a contentious or a controversial subject because it's sort of just a matter of fact, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy blatant fact in our world. You know, there's climate change and if we don't do something about it quick there, we're in deep trouble, if not even bigger trouble. So, yeah, uh, I need to cut in just to let you know, um, it, we can't go completely an hour without any sarcasm. So I just of need course. to just chime in and remind you that we live in a post fact world, Frank. Sure. Uh, secondly, I'm also just letting you know, we're coming up on one. We're probably about due for a music break. You let me know. Absolutely. And I was just going to ask Beverly, we're going to, um, we want to share one of your compositions today, Beverly, that you were okay. just talking about. So this is a project, um, and a composition project you worked on called Buzu Manumen. Am I pronouncing it correctly? I pronounce it Bojo Manomen. Thank you very much. So with long O's on the double O's, <laughs> on the double vowels. That's, that's fabulous. And this is a, a, a compositional suite uh, of nine pieces you compose for flute, piano, and cello or viola, if I'm yes. assuming correctly. And this is, uh, can you tell us what inspired this composition? Bojo Manomen is about the Manomen which is wild rice in, in uh, the Ojibwe language. Manomen has a, a long history of uh, association with the Anishinaabe people in their oral history. So it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a plant food that is very important 
in the spiritual and uh, traditional history of the Ojibwe people. So in the oral history, um, Anishinaabe people were living on the east coast of uh, what we call Turtle Island, which is North America. And uh, they were told that they had to leave that land and travel west to find the food that grows on the water or else they wouldn't survive. So they did that. So my my suite is uh, part partly that oral history and also the steps that are involved in the monomen, uh, in the harvesting of the monomen. Monomen is a, uh, a very sensitive crop, I, I would say. It's affected by a lot of variables. So it's very susceptible to activities such as mining, uh, any deviations in um, the levels of water. Um, there's a number of steps involved in the harvest, so those that's what I tried to capture in in my writing. So we're going to listen to of uh, the the nine tracks. We're going to listen to the fifth track uh, first, if that's okay, Beverly. Sure. And can you tell us a little bit about that specific piece, the title, okay. and and what's the inspiration behind that specific uh, piece in the All right, that piece is called. Uh, Mishoma's Point, and it's inspired by my visit to my mother's reserve, which is Laxo First Nation, and uh, more specifically, a community called uh, Obishikokong, which is, in English, is known as Frenchman's Head. Um, I was separated from my family as a, as a baby. I was adopted, and uh, so I haven't had a lot of connection to my territory, but last summer I went there and I spent a day with my daughter and uh, a cousin and uh, an elder, and they took me to this place on um, Laksu. Uh, and that, the, the community was affected by flooding in uh, the 1930s for to build a power dam. And uh, the community was literally split by uh, by the waters, and the there were a number of impacts. The the Monoman beds were flooded, uh, sacred burial grounds, ceremonial places, and of course the uh, disruption to the community life. So this song was just about being in that place and experiencing the beauty, despite. The destruction that had happened, and uh, so it's it's primarily hopeful. All right, let's listen to an excerpt from from the fifth piece in Beverly Suite. Thank you.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT at 9.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country and uh, occasionally in outer space, depending on how the satellites are facing that day. Uh, it is my normal news cruise week off. We are uh, giving you back to my very appreciated uh, guest host, Frank Horvat, with our Eco uh, Music Roundtable. And before I hand you back, uh, Beverly, that was an incredible track. Yeah, it was Thank love you. It. Beautiful incredible. piece. Back to beautiful you, piece, Beverly. Um, can you introduce the musicians we were hearing in there? Yes, we have uh, Larissa DeRossi on vocals. She's a, a, a student at Carleton, and she's also from uh, a neighboring community in northwestern Ontario. Uh, we have Anne Cure on cello. She's an instrument maker and teacher here in Ottawa. There's Zoe Dumas on flute. She's a, a student at uh, Ottawa U and myself on piano. Beautiful piece. Beautiful piece. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We'll get back to another piece in Beverly's um, suite uh, later in the show. Let's talk uh, to Julie about uh, some of her uh, some of her artwork. So, Julie, let's talk about your uh, series called the Anthropocene Vessel Series. Tell us about it. Uh, sure. So, um, this is a series of uh, 3D works that I began this year. Uh, my background is in painting. Um, I do landscape painting in an abstract language, and um, I found in my work that I started really, you know, um, looking at everything that was around me in the landscape. So not, you know, back to what we were saying before, not just what um, we want to look at, like the flowers and the trees, but um, just trying to, you know, d actually see what what is there. And I started incorporating, um, you know, in paintings of water, for example, seeing um, plastic bottles and other sorts of detritus that is more and more present in the environment. And um, and so I began this project. I'm always um, photographing. As instead of sketching, that's a big part of my process, and so I have an, I started this documenting process when I walk around. Um, every time I would find a single-use discarded plastic bottle on the street or in a park or whatever, um, I just take a picture, and so I have a really big archive of photographs. And um, I began doing installation and sculptural work a couple years ago. It's another project maybe we'll talk about um, afterwards. Um, but I started um, cr basically making these small sculptures inspired by the these photographs that I was taking. Um, and the sculptures, I guess it's a not a visual medium on the radio, so mm -hmm. um, I'll just describe them quickly. They're basically... Um, the size of a bottle, uh, you know, a, a plastic bottle, um, and I sculpt them out of plaster, and then I actually treat them like three-dimensional paintings. So I'm going back onto um, each sculpture and painting on top of them, and I use very bright colors to um, really highlight um, 
the refractions, the reflections, the light, um, so that they become this sort of object of fascination. And one thing I was really interested in exploring in this series is the history of um, sort of museological tradition of displaying artifacts. Um, In particular, my my grandfather um, was an archaeologist, and he specialized in um, marine marine archaeology. Um, and he founded a museum in Haifa in Israel where he was displaying um, vessels that car- carrying containers from ancient civilizations. And so this is my contemporary take on that um, on that. Um, yeah, basically displaying, okay, these are the artifacts of our culture, um, these single-use um, plastic plastic objects, and so playing around with displaying them as fine art objects and also entering into some uh, dialogue with the art, sort of contemporary art um, history around pop art and um, mass, mass-produced objects versus fine art objects. Um, and so this is an ongoing series, and I'm just I keep making them. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it looks great. I'm, I'm getting a chance. We're getting a chance to see them in the studio right now. For those of you who will listen to the podcast version of this later, we're going to supply Saren with um, these photos, so that can be included on this episode's webpage. So you can be looking at the pay, at some of the pictures that uh, that of um, of Julie's work. Um, I, I'm always fascinated by this idea of a vessel or a bottle. It's such an important thing in our human history, right? Um, I find it quite interesting, and either of you can comment about this, that, um, you know, the vessel has looked, been seen as, of course, it gives us water, it gives us the ability to drink water, um, and and it also delivers messages, you know, and rolling up on a shore, and of course, like you mentioned, archaeologically, it's so fascinating. But now we live in this day and age when we're bombarded with the plastic ball, and I think the plastic ball is going to be a bit of our theme today, because we're going to talk a bit about that in Rebecca's own work. Does, do either of you have any thoughts about sort of that uh, paradox, you know, where we've we've gone from this sort of beautiful ancient world of where such an object is revered and reusable to be very practical now to where it's it's just thrown away like nothing matters do you want to comment on that or? Uh, well I will just say that um, that's one of the the themes that I am exploring in this project is um, the vessel even the, the word vessel you know it it, it evokes this sense of storing a substance that's precious that we want to protect. And I find it's just um, noteworthy that now, even though we know water is our most precious resource for life on Earth, it, it's telling that the vessels that are conta- carrying it or containing it are considered worthless. And I think there's just some, that's, that's a really important question that perhaps we can all ask ourselves is what is valuable? I wonder if there's uh, another side to it in, um, in which we do revere it just as much. Only we revere all of the multiples of plastic bottles as one single idea. And it's the idea of uh, you know, progress and modernity and convenience convenience yeah. and we so it's it's still an incredibly symbolic vessel 
if you look singularly at all the plastic bottles in the world as one one idea, one one idea as a vessel. I think maybe we revere it absolutely, if as much if not more, to our detriment. Absolutely. Well, that this actually is a great segue to talk about um, uh, one of uh, Rebecca's amazing projects, and that is. Um, something called Four Minutes, and it has this title right now, uh, or it did for its first iteration, but I know you're going to tell us a little about this. This was um, this was a commission you received from Environmental Defense, the NGO? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Environmental Defense is working on a campaign um, to get Ontario to engage with um, uh, a deposit return system for plastic water bottles, which um, almost every other province has. We don't have it. There's resistance on the part of industry, not surprisingly, and on the part of the grocery stores who would have to manage the actual trade of, of plastic for money. Um, so, uh, but it, you know, just requires political will, which I suppose now is less likely than it might have been a year ago. Um, but... Um, so they collected as a demonstration of how well it works to offer 10 cents per bottle to put a value, to give the bottles value to people, um, that, that 12,000 bottles were brought back to them in a, in, a, in a campaign over a few days where people wow. collected them and brought them in and got their 10 cents a per bottle. A few days? Yeah, a few separate collection days. And they had some schools doing it and schools did it as environmental fundraising and they used the money for projects for gardens and things like that at their schools. Um, so they actually, I do want to mention the name of a close friend of mine, Eleanor Whidden, who's a really amazing, interesting artist. And it was initially offered to her, but she couldn't do it. So she passed it on to me. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm. Um, thank you, Eleanor. Um, and you should look up Eleanor's work. Um, but, uh, so I made an installation for this campaign in January with the 12,000 bottles and it was in Union Station for one day and then after about six weeks of creating it at the end of the one day of showing it we pulled it all apart and threw all the bottles into bags and off they went to a recycling depot so that was very like both heartbreaking and cathartic um that it really brings to mind the idea of just non-attachment you know you really you make something and then it's just gone um but then uh environmental defense was asked by organizers of pride to recreate a version for pride so i was i was asked again to make a new one so they did a new collection and we had we probably had 20,000 bottles at least but they didn't all quite make it into the into the work um and uh so then it was at pride and Ripley's Aquarium came on as a sponsor for that project. So now it's up at Ripley's Aquarium. And in this iteration, it's called Over Our Heads. And what it includes is um, an old aluminum canoe. Um, a, it's so, so you have to walk under it and um, be really, at least in, in the installation at Pride, you had to be very much enveloped by the plastic. So it really had the sense that the plastic became the water, which is quite a, a sort of a ap apocalyptic view, but it's really a reference to how much particulate plastic there is in the water. And we think about the oceans, but we often don't think about the Great Lakes. And it's really, it's the same problem. It's just as bad in the Great Lakes. And it's right. And, and that is water that we are drinking. We are drinking plastic in our water every day. That's what we get. Um, because those bottles don't stay as bottles. They break down in the, the mechanical processes that nature will go about exerting on 
materials, no matter what the material is, whether it's a material of the Anthropocene or a, a rock or whatever, it will get broken down and it will end up in the environment. I'm being signaled here. No, I just I, yeah. quit, I yeah. can't resist uh, the occasional quick fact that's on topic. So they sure. there a number of years ago they were doing a, a they wanted to do a study on the toxicity of Teflon. They had to cancel the study because they couldn't find any human or animal on Earth without Teflon in its system. So I just I thought that reinforced your point. That's all. That's yeah, I mean that's the our porousness with we we want to think the environment is a place outside of us and it isn't. We are the environment and it is us and there's no separation. You know there's no matter is separate from any other matter. There's a theory that there's only one electron in the universe, and it just bounces around really, really fast. I just, <laughs> just a, a, a sort of a very artsy question has just popped into my head because I, I, I've sort of thought about this in my own work sometimes, and I want to ask the two of you very directly. Um, when you're working with uh, an object or a media, I guess we would call it, so in this case, we're talking about plastic bottles here. Do you ever have any reservations about the fact that you're using a highly toxic thing to create this immaculate work that people are going to look at and perhaps people might look at it and miss the point? I think about that all the time. Um, I don't want, for example, to try to change the bottles from what they are. I'm a minimalist. I let materials be themselves. It is a part of my practice. So bottles are bottles. Um, they're not painted to look like fish or to be made into some other thing. So I do want people to have to encounter a mass of bottles. And from a distance in the photos that really does look kind of transparent and shiny, but up close you see they still have liquid in them. They Some of them have cigarette butts in them. They have garbage inside of them. They're not pretty. Um, so when you are put into an encounter more directly with them, you really do get the sense of the fact that, that this is not attractive. And most people's response to walking through that mass of bottles is, wow, this is an amazing thing because it's so much work. And often what we respond to in works of art is the labor that the artist has put in. And so that's a that's a visceral reaction we have to art when we we're, we, we feel the labor in our bodies that we can see the artist has put into the work. Um, and so people are kind of amazed by that, but on the other hand, they are then disgusted. Yeah. Uh, just, just so listeners know what, uh, Rebecca's referring to, we will share a link to Rebecca's, uh, project page on this project. So you can check out the, uh, what we're discussing exactly on the episode page. Um, Julie, do you want to comment on that? Because Rebecca just said, mm -hmm. I tried to keep the bottles exactly the same. So it's minimalist, uh, that type of thing. You are the complete opposite in some of your pieces here. You are really changing it. Do you have any reservations? Like people are going to look at this and maybe not get the point and maybe get the opposite point that, oh, plastic bottles are great. No, um, I mean, I think it's amazing that we are tackling the same topic from such different angles. For me, um, I, I believe that people are not dumb. Like, I think people know that plastic is a problem. Um, and so my goal as an artist is to um, create, create work, create objects that hopefully will help people see things from a different perspective and just begin to ask different types of questions. So in this case, um, 
the surprising or unexpected thing is to look upon a plastic bottle as a thing of beauty or as a th- as an object of interest. Um, they seem almost like cartoon characters. And by creating that contrast within the object itself, that disconnect, hopefully, um, at least my intention is to get people to pause for a second and just to think about, okay, well, wait a second, you know, I'm not looking at, you know, these bottles are an incredible invention, truly, like they're magnificent, but we don't really pause to look at them and think about what they are and what we're doing with them. They're very functional, they're very convenient, and then they're tossed aside. So I'm hoping to just get us to think a little bit about what we're using. I guess that's what we're all trying to do in all our work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're trying to motivate people to to think about things. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that we're working in opposite ways because I think that we're both, um, I think most artists, when you work with a material or you reflect on a particular form, you can't do that purely out of disdain. You have to have respect for it as well. And I would say we both do. I mean, the bottles that I'm working with I, I mean, on a physical level, I have to respect the kind of the the handling each and every single bottle of the 12,000 in that exhibition. I had to Absolutely. individually yeah. handle. You're having a relationship. I have with to have one. a relationship. And if yeah. I just yeah. felt disgust or disdain purely, I couldn't sustain my own um, interaction with the artwork. So I have to, and I can't blame the plastic. Plastic no. is a matter that is being plastic. It's not... It's not out to get us. It's humans who have <laughs> created right. it, right? I, I think mean, that's beautiful. I love yeah. that you're, you know, befriending each and every item and sort of taking Multiple it into times. the fold. Multiple times. I yeah. had to touch. You know, yeah. I really was, I felt like um, in a sort of uh, through the feminist framework that I often look at the work that I'm doing as well is that the, the, the handling every bottle was akin to a kind of um, food processing where I have to peel off every label it's almost like a shucking mm-hmm. and then I was tying every single bottle together and creating a knot and then there's that another woman's labor of of knot making or knitting or fabric creation and so nothing is simple right I guess no. is the point it, no, it's I, beautiful and you're you're kind of working with the shadow side you know that cultural you know our culture is having a hard time facing right now you're looking right at it so. yeah yeah no it is it's quite a provocative work indeed um and yeah the labor you can definitely see that but but it but i do agree rebecca when i look at it it does give a lot more than just that wow you did such a great job wow that must have been a lot of hard work you know i'm getting i'm getting more of that and i know that i often i work on projects and the people are like wow you work so hard on that and it's like that's all you have to say oh man you know sometimes it's not a nice feeling but you get out of art what you put in yeah absolutely um beverly mciver um, any any comments about what we're talking about here? The state of water, the state of the use of plastics, um, how it relates to our art making? Yes, well, I have the advantage. I was able to look at uh, the work while you were talking of both uh, Julie and Rebecca, and uh, I'm truly inspired. What it made me think of was uh, the work of uh, Josephine Mandeman, the water walker, uh, what she has done, she's an Anishinaabe grandmother, and she walked around each of the Great Lakes with a copper pail of water. Uh, she's known as the, the water walker, 
and her message is that water is very precious. And I actually had the privilege of doing a short segment of one of her walks that retraced the the route of the Anishinaabe from the, the East Coast to somewhere in, in Michigan. Uh, so I actually got to experience carrying the, that uh, copper pail of water. And you realize how precious it is when you realize that you are you are not allowed to spill any of that water that's in that copper pail. And that's very difficult. You would think it would be okay, but all of a sudden you're you're measuring your steps and and you're con- you're conscious. You have to concentrate. You you can't really engage in anything else but concentrating on that water while you're carrying it. And uh, the other walks that I participated in for just a, a short stretch of the uh, of the the whole journey, uh, was from um, Eagle Lake in northwestern Ontario to Shoal Lake, Manitoba. And uh, in uh, the Shoal Lake supplies Winnipeg with all of its fresh water, but the people on the reserve actually don't have drinkable water. So that's uh, very sad. So the idea of the, the vessel being very precious really relates to me. And also in Rebecca's work, describing how how many steps are involved in in your work, that 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 kind of spoke to me in the in the Manoman harvest and how many steps are involved and and uh, how many people it actually takes to to create that that crop. Well, it's interesting. That's that's a good segue into talking about um, and setting up another listening of one of the movements, Beverly, uh, movement number nine. Can you tell us a little bit about that in the in your suite? Okay, uh, we, we did movement number nine previously. Oh, sorry, we did. Oh, I apologize. Okay, so previously we heard movement number nine. So now we're going to hear number five. And actually, I guess you accidentally told us about number five earlier. Is that correct? Before you No, I, I spoke about number nine. Oh, I, I apologize. Oh, okay, so let's, okay. let's hear about number five. Okay, well, number five really ties into the, into the water theme. Okay. It's, it's called Gizus, the sun. That's the Ojibwe word for the sun. And this piece is about... The, the interconnectedness of all of life. So in the process of, uh, of harvesting manoman, after you've gathered it from the water, you have to lay it out to the sun to dry. And after it, when it's been gathered in the canoe, there's all kinds of stuff going in. There's water, there's, uh, there are little rice worms, there's plants, there's flying insects. And they're all in with the monomen. So it, it's kind of, um, it's like this little universe and everything's kind of moving and and uh, things are flying away and and then the you have to let it dry in the sun before you can do anything further with it. So this piece is about all that life that's happening all at once and how we all depend on the sun and the water for life. So we're, we're all part of it. Here's Beverly, Beverly's um, uh, suite, um, movement number five. Mm-hmm. 
Black here on the Eco Artist uh, Roundtable on the Green Majority. I'm Frank Horvat. Um, just wrapping up um, this great roundtable we're having. I'm joined uh, by Julie Gladstone, visual artist, and uh, Rebecca Jane Houston, visual artist. And on the line from uh, Ottawa with us is Beverly McIver. We just heard your beautiful composition, Beverly. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and apologies for the little dead air we had. We had a little technical problem in the studio, but I'm happy we were able to hear some of that. And again, a quick shout out to the musicians who we just heard on that track. That was Anne Cure on cello, Zoe Dumas on flute, and myself on piano. And that was a this this whole suite, the Bozo Manomen, was uh, was premiered here in Toronto at. The Water is Life gathering in last September, September 2017. Is that correct? Yes. Fabulous. And that must have been a special day for you. It's always special for us artists when uh, when a premiere happens, right? The first. It was, the first and it was particularly spe- special because Winona LaDuke was the keynote speaker. Oh, fabulous. Um, so we're going down the home stretch of today's show. So just going to throw out a, a random, uh, random thought here and a random idea, and I'd like all of you to comment on this. Do you think enough artists are exploring eco themes in their work? Um, because uh, I'll be blunt, and I don't want to make any enemies amongst my colleagues within the the creative art music community, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only one doing uh writing any music on eco themes or anything related to climate change or eco sustainability um so let's just go around the table here and uh get your thoughts rebecca um i i think that if you're looking strictly only at climate change it might be hard to find but i don't think so actually i think in the in um in the visual arts it's very prevalent um, but I was also just mentioning before that I think that uh, when we're looking at artists who are kind of coming out of recent work about truth and reconciliation in Canada and Indigenous artists who are making so much more music and culture, or at least it's getting more covered, I would say, it's always been there, um, that there's a really rich, uh, deep kind of field of, of artists who are working on places where um, – environmental concerns and other forms of oppression are intersecting. Beverly, do you want to comment on that? Yes, well, in, to prepare for this talk, I, I was trying to find musicians who were writing about eco-themes, and initially I had a hard time. I started creating a playlist on uh, Spotify, which I'll, uh, I'll share with you, That'd be great. Frank. Yeah. Um, so I, there's a few artists that I want to mention. Uh, Tanya Tagak. Yes. Lido yeah. Pimienta. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorites, Bruce Coburn, Joni Mitchell, and a, uh, a jazz comp- uh, comp- composer, Maria Schneider. Yes. Love her work. She wrote, uh, she's an avid bird watcher, and she wrote a, a composition about the migration that happens over New York, and uh, it's a com- it's an incredibly compelling work. So uh, these are all fabulous artists. I love their work and I respect. But uh, Julie, uh, if if climate change is the single most important issue to the survival of the human race, why isn't every single artist on this planet writing about this stuff right now? <laughs> <laughs> 
Why is that not happening? You know, I deal with climate change in my work, but as I'm doing it, I'm sort of terrified the entire time. I think it's a very difficult topic to penetrate, and particularly if you don't feel like you have the answers to the problems. Um, so I, I don't know if that's an obstacle for some people. I think um, it can be a very overwhelming uh, topic, and if people are going to either listen to music or view art um, for pleasure, for entertainment, to feel good, um, it, it can be very challenging to be confronted with such a dire situation. Um, I went to go see the new Edward Bertinsky film, Anthropocene, um, and though I consider myself an environmentalist, I, I was scared to go see it. Um, and it was very difficult to sit through and watch it. And so I can only imagine, you know, someone like myself who's open and really wants to see these changes, you know, it's, it's not an easy topic. And, you know, that's why I, I sort of come back to the idea of I may not have the solutions, I may have some ideas. However, you know, maybe the role of, of the arts is to help help the audience, help ourselves process the emotions and the fear around living in a time like this. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that there are a lot of artists who are looking to challenge um, power and to challenge capitalist forms, um, and that that's the same work as tackling climate change, because climate change comes from rampant late capitalism and the inability to change or to stop what these massive powers are doing to change the planet. And I think one a problem that people get maybe uh, tied up with, um, or a, a barrier that we get tied up with is all these sort of small gestures that we're supposed to make as individuals. And that's not the point. So we're just, exactly. we're just, we're getting close to the end here, just quickly from each of you. Um, is our work should our work be um, should our work be making the audience or the listener um, change their ways, or are we just purely here for bringing awareness, Beverly? <laughs> I think it's a bit of both. Is it? I I would like to think that my work would create awareness and also lead to people changing their ways. Julie? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's such a big top, it's such a big question. I mean, I agree with Rebecca that I would like to see um, things change in the infrastructure. Um, and I, I, you know, a lot of my audience probably already feels the way that I feel. So, um, Sure, I, I would love to think that my work could bring awareness and help bring positive change. I do feel that those changes need to come from um, the powers that be. Rebecca, yeah, it's the it's the massive um, on the on the corporate the huge corporate level and the the conglomerates and corporations that are are. Uh, pushing their interests and pushing their interests, like Nestle, for example, the heinous behavior of Nestle all over the planet. If all we worry about is, did I recycle this individual plastic bottle? I think we're missing the big picture. 
for sure. Um, just quickly, how can everybody, because this has been such an awesome show and you guys have talked about your work, people need to check out all of your work more. Um, Beverly, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and or check out your music? You can find me on SoundCloud. Okay. Uh, just do a search for Beverly, Beverly McIver, and we will uh, we'll uh, do a link um, on the episode page to uh, Beverly's SoundCloud page, where you can listen to more of the movements from her lovely composition today. Uh, Julie, best way to get in touch with you or check out your work? Um, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at, at Jules Glad. You can also go to my website, juliegladstone.com. Rebecca. Um, on Instagram, it's at Rebecca Jane Houston. And my uh, portfolio site is a carbon made site. So if you um, carbonmade.com slash Rebecca Jane Houston. And good old fashioned Google. Google, Google just that's to right. type just in Google Rebecca it. Jane yeah, Houston. And you can go to um, currently Ripley's, uh, that the installation is at Ripley's Aquarium. So it's, it's there to see if you want to go and experience it. Very cool. If you're in the Toronto area, please check that out. Um, and for me, Frank Horvat, just uh, frankhorvat.com. You can connect with me. So this has been absolutely awesome. I want to thank Saren and the entire um, uh, Green Majority crew for allowing the artist to invade the uh, the green majority territory and space today it has been absolutely amazing and fun um, we always we we definitely need experts we definitely need pundits but uh, sometimes us artists have our own viewpoint of stuff and hopefully we've shared that with you today and uh, hopefully we'll do this again so thank you all for being here Beverly thank you for being on the line from Ottawa that's been fabulous to have you thank you for sharing your music thanks Beverly thank yeah. you and and uh, uh, Julie and Rebecca and uh, Saren on the board behind the glass. So thank you all. All right. Yeah, so we'll have to go. But thank you so much for listening to this week's show. If you'd like to email comments, questions, concerns, Frank's going to do this again. You can email us through the show page uh, with any suggestions or comments you might have. We'll get those over to Frank. Other than that, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. Check out the website greenmajority.ca if you missed anything. Other than that, we'll see you real soon. <laughs>